Hi, I'm Gary from Stonyfield, the organic yogurt company. Do you know what that certified organic label on your food really means? Learn all about that label and why organic is worth it at stonyfield.com. We're proud to be making organic yogurt and honored to support Living on Earth. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The climate summit wraps up in Doha. One sticking point, who will pay to help the developing world adapt to climate change? When the world banking system was on the verge of collapse, leaders and finance ministers from around the world mobilized uh, $1 trillion to bail out the banks, and yet we're having such a hard time going above $10 billion a year to bail out the world's ecosystems and, and human communities. And vulnerable island nations are fast disappearing beneath the rising seas, and also disappearing Africa's once boundless grasslands and their wildlife. Savannah, Africa is in deep trouble, and it's in worse trouble, in fact, than the world's rainforests. And it's those savannas that lions depend upon, and so lions are in trouble. That and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. For the last 18 years, the United Nations Climate Secretariat has brought together just about all the nations for annual talks. But so far, a rigorous deal for mandatory caps on global warming gases has stayed out of reach. There was Kyoto in 1997, where the U.S. signed but later refused to ratify. There was Copenhagen in 2009. That blew up when the world's two biggest emitters, the United States and China, collided amid hardball politics. Yet the process continues with weak agreements keeping it alive. This year, the talks are in Doha, Qatar, where we turn to Alden Meyer, the Union of Concerned Scientists, for an update. Well, this is kind of a transitional meeting. It's closing down uh, two sets of negotiations that have been going on over the last uh, seven years or so. One about extending the Kyoto Protocol, giving it eight more years of life. And the other, trying to engage the United States, developing countries and others that aren't included in Kyoto, in ramping up uh, their level of ambition and action on climate change in a voluntary way outside of a legally binding framework. This meeting in itself in Doha is not going to lead to uh, much in the way of additional emission reductions the atmosphere sees. It's really more of a process. So what does Doha mean for the Kyoto Protocol? The initial commitments under the Kyoto Protocol are due to end at the end of this month, the end of 2012. And since 2005, they've been negotiating about what would uh, replace those or extend those. And the betting here is that you will get the European Union, Australia, Norway, Switzerland, a few other countries agreeing to stay in Kyoto. But you've already seen Japan, Russia, uh, New Zealand, and Canada say that they will not take on commitments under Kyoto. So the share of emissions, global emissions, covered by Kyoto continues to shrink. So obviously by itself, it's not going to do the job. Now, the United States, indeed the world, is part of a voluntary deal cut in Copenhagen to reduce emissions. What's been done about the voluntary side of things at the Doha meeting? Well, a couple of things there. There have been a few additional countries that have come in and and made pledges. Uh, The Dominican Republic, for example, just announced that they would seek to uh, cut their emissions uh, about 25%. The irony, of course, is that the host country, Qatar, which is one of the richest and highest emitting per capita countries in the world, has not made any pledge to cut its own emissions. What has happened in in, uh, Doha in terms of getting legally binding limits on greenhouse gases 
going forward? That part of the negotiations actually is going pretty well in terms of laying out the plan of work for next year for what's called the Durban Platform Track. The part that's not going well is finance. You'll remember that in Copenhagen, President Obama and Hillary Clinton came in and and promised to try to ratchet up collective support from developed countries on climate finance for activities like uh, deploying renewable energy and energy efficiency technologies in developing countries, conserving rainforests, and adapting to the mounting impacts of climate change. They committed to try to ramp up that support from the roughly $10 billion a year that it's been at from all the industrialized countries over the last three years towards $100 billion a year by 2020. And the big question here is, uh, will the United States, Japan, Europe, uh, and the other industrialized countries keep their promise? Of course, the world is in the middle of an economic crisis. Alden Meyer, what are the odds of the industrialized countries keeping this commitment to come up with all this cash to less developed countries to help fight climate change? Well, it's obviously a tough fiscal environment in Japan, Europe, and the U.S. But on the other hand, just think that Superstorm Sandy cost New Jersey, Connecticut, and, and New York an estimated $80 billion for one storm alone, and that cost is rising. So you have to put this in perspective of the impacts we're seeing. There was a very emotional intervention by the Philippines delegation talking about the impact of the typhoon that's currently devastating the Philippines and, and what that's doing, and, and it got a very uh, emotional, uh, sustained ovation from everyone. So I think people are putting this in perspective and saying that, yes, uh, there will be some cost of helping developing countries take more action, but the cost of inaction is far greater. And it's also not gone unnoticed that when the world banking system was on the verge of collapse in 2008, leaders and finance ministers from around the world mobilized $1 trillion seemingly overnight to bail out the banks, and yet we're having such a hard time going above $10 billion a year to bail out the world's ecosystems and and human communities. So in the wake of extreme events like the typhoon in the Philippines and Superstorm Sandy uh, in the greater New York area, what sense, if any, is there of renewed urgency in Doha to, to take more immediate action? Well, there's clearly continuing urgency among the countries on the front line, the the least developed countries, the small island states, some of the coastal countries like Bangladesh. I mean, they're, they're getting increasingly desperate in their pleas for help on this front. There doesn't seem to be tremendous urgency among the major emitting countries, whether it's the U.S., uh, Japan, China. I think the reality is until those countries and political leaders start feeling some political heat from their own constituencies back home, that's not likely to change. Alden, before you go, observers of this process uh, see it moving so slowly they question whether it serves any function uh, anymore. How do you respond to folks who feel that what's going on at the U.N. climate negotiations isn't amounting to all that much? Well, I mean, it's not amounting to what we need, but it's clearly doing more than we would have seen on a business-as-usual basis. So it is making a difference. It's just not making enough of a difference fast enough. But the reality is there's no other game in town. You sort of have to negotiate and, and try to work your way through this with the international system you have, not the one you wish you had. Alden Meyer is Director of Policy and Strategy at the Union of Concerned Scientists. Thank you so much. Thanks, Steve. Great to be with you. Analysts at the Carbon Tracker Initiative in London calculate that the fossil fuel industry has about 2,800 gigatons of reserves of oil and gas in the ground. Trouble is, that's five times the amount that humanity can burn if we want to keep the global temperature rise below 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit, the target set by the voluntary 2009 Copenhagen Accord. 
Writer Bill McKibben of 350.org highlighted that math in a story he recently wrote for Rolling Stone magazine, and now he's on the road with what he calls the Do the Math Tour, playing to sold-out crowds from Atlanta to Seattle. Living on Earth's Emmett Fitzgerald has our story from Brown University in Rhode Island. Brown University's largest auditorium was filled to capacity as Bill McKibben took the stage. He wore old tennis shoes and a plain blue button-down shirt, the kind of clothes you might expect on a writer from Vermont. McKibben finds it a little funny that his Rolling Stone article went viral. It was in the issue with Justin Bieber on the cover, but two days later the editor called up and said, this is odd, your piece has ten times as many likes on Facebook as Justin Bieber's. And Brown University liked him too. This was no ordinary math lecture. Environmentalists from Van Jones to Naomi Klein to the head of Greenpeace all made video appearances. And a group of students piled cases of beer on stage. McKibben compared the effects of binge drinking. They would be wasted. They'd be polluted. They'd be smashed. They'd be trashed. With carbon pollution, a hangover lasts a few hours. Carbon emissions, he said, last for geologic time. And he wasn't only pushing the problem, he offered a way forward. On screen, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, a veteran of the anti-apartheid struggle in South Africa, spoke about how divestment campaigns run by U.S. college students helped to free his country from apartheid. The divestment movement played a key role in helping liberate South Africa. Climate change is a deeply moral issue too, of course. Once again, we can join together as a world and put pressure where it counts. That's Desmond Tutu. And for Bill McKibben, the only way to stop global warming is to attack the coal industry where it hurts, in the pocketbook. He says that universities with huge endowments invested in the stock market have a key role to play. Colleges and churches and other places are where we think about moral issues. Colleges are where we learned about global warming, where the work was done. And if you go to the webpage of any college or university in America, there's a long section outlining their commitment to sustainability. They're greening the campus with new buildings, with bike paths, whatever it is. Well, that's good. We should be greening campuses. And if we are, then there's no logical reason we're not greening our portfolios at the same time. In the month since the Do the Math tour hit the road, students at over 100 colleges have launched divestment campaigns. Tiny Unity College in Maine joined Hampshire College as the only schools to commit to full divestment from the fossil fuel industry so far. Brown University's Divest Coal campaign was established this fall and has been pressuring the administration to divest from what it calls the Filthy 15. The Filthy 15 are basically the worst of the worst. Emily Kirkland is a leader of the Brown Divest Coal campaign. They're coal mining companies or electric utilities that depend heavily on coal, and they're remarkable for their disregard for human health and the environment. Divesting from coal is something that Brown can do now. Coal is the largest global source of carbon dioxide emissions, and by divesting from coal, Brown can be a climate leader starting right now. The campaign organized a rally and gathered over 2,000 signatures on a petition in just a month. The student activists hope that the administration will take their demands seriously. We've met twice with President Paxson. We've presented to a university committee dedicated to overseeing the social responsibility of the endowment. And we're very optimistic that Brown's administration will move quickly and make Brown one of the first schools in the country to divest. 
As for Bill McKibben, he says that while the tour has been exciting, the road life of a rock star is wearing. Truth be told, traveling around in the tour bus is somewhat more romantic in theory than in practice, and I'm a little worn out. <laughs> the, I'm, the, the main problem is I'm six foot three, and the bunks that we're living in are six feet. <laughs> so, <laughs> but there we are, big biodiesel bus powering down the highway, and it is a beautiful, beautiful country. Um, and to get to wake up every morning rolling through some other mountains is, you know, is, is a kind of beautiful thing. He may be ready for a quiet winter in Vermont, but on this tour, he's shown he can bring the crowds to their feet. Stay on your feet and look around at each other because you are what a movement looks like. It makes no difference to talk about this stuff. It makes enormous difference to do something about this stuff. For Living on Earth, I'm Emmett Fitzgerald in Providence, Rhode Island. Just ahead, counting big cats and caribou. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Secretary of State Hillary Clinton declared December 4th, 2012, the first ever Wildlife Conservation Day, an occasion to think about and try to act to preserve the fast-disappearing wild creatures around the world. Consider the lion. He may be the king of beasts, but he's not escaping the onslaught. A new study has found that Africa's lions are more endangered than ever before. Here to talk with us is one of the study's authors, Stuart Pym. He's chair of conservation ecology at the Nicholas School of the Environment at Duke. I think we have the expectation that Savannah, Africa is, is a large wilderness with, with lions chasing after zebras. The reality that comes out of our study is that from an area a third larger than the continental United States, only about 25% remains. Savannah, Africa is in deep trouble. And it's in worse trouble, in fact, than the world's rainforests. And it's those savannas that lions depend upon. And so lions are in trouble. They've lost three quarters of their habitat and done so probably in the last 50 years. You said a huge amount of the savanna has disappeared. What's happened to it? We were able to take a really close look, a very detailed look at Savannah, Africa by using Google Earth. We were able to, as it were, fly uh, over the savannas of Africa as, as if we were in a small plane at a low elevation. And we were able to identify which areas had been converted to human use. And large areas of West Africa had been thought to be sort of okay. When we take a really close look, uh, we realize that most of that area was already converted to small-scale croplands. So how many lions are we talking about? 50 years ago, um, with four times as much territory as today, how many lions were there and how many are there today? We're not terribly sure of the estimates, but it seems that about 100,000 lions were roaming around 50 years ago. We're now down to between 32 and 35,000. Now, which countries have lost their lions? Well, West Africa in particular is in bad shape, and almost no lions remain there. There are still strongholds of lions um, from South Africa through uh, Botswana, Namibia, Kenya, Tanzania. 
but that's uh, a small fraction of the original range of the lion. Now, what about the pastoralists, the people who uh, live in the countryside and have livestock? And Well, there tends to be conflict sometimes with lions. Except in South Africa, um, the national parks are not fenced. And indeed, they can't be fenced because of the fact that lions need huge areas larger than the national parks themselves. A particularly good example of this is work done by Dr. Leila Lichtenfeld, who works in Tanzania. She works in a community outside a national park. During the wet season, the animals move out over an area four times the size of the national park, and that's where they have conflicts with people. Herdsmen bring their cattle and goats into protected areas, protected corrals. We call them bomas. These bomas are rings of, of thorny bushes. And, you know, lions are smart, and they get through the bomas and kill the cattle. And so in the morning, the, the villagers are you know, appropriately irate, find the lions and kill them. So what Laley and her team are doing is to build better bomas. She's using chain-link fence. She's planting thorny bushes uh, interleaved into the chain-link fence. These bomas that she produces are lion-proof. And if the lions can't get in, they're not going to kill cattle. You know, and the people are quite happy for lions to wander around as long as they're not killing their cattle. So there are ways, there are creative ways, of minimizing the conflict between lions and people. And I think the really exciting story about what's happening across Africa is people are developing this technique and other techniques to minimize that conflict. What do you think is the impact of sport hunting on lions today? Ah, that is a difficult and very controversial question. Kenya bans all hunting, while Tanzania allocates more of its land to hunting than uh, it does uh, national parks. So two countries with big wildlife populations are taking very different strategies. And it reflects the, um, the great uncertainties in what's the best way to manage lions. Hunters would argue that they bring in a substantial amount of revenue from their hunts, and that revenue encourages Tanzania to, to allocate large areas for, for lion hunting and therefore protecting the lions. Kenya feels that um, uh, having a lion hunts is a bad thing. The problem for which we do not have a good answer is certainly if lion hunting is sustainable, then it protects large areas of countryside. We don't know whether it's sustainable or not. And the evidence points to the fact that in some places, lion hunting has caused lions to decline. What about poaching? It's hard to say. I mean, poachers don't check in and let you know how many animals they're killing. There's a lot of money to be made from it. Lion body parts are being uh, exported as the nearest best thing to tiger parts, which is a cause of tigers being hunted to nearly to extinction. But it's a, it's a major worry. It's clearly a major worry with other African animals, such as, as rhinos and elephants. African wildlife is under attack, it would seem. A decline in lions, a loss of elephants, rhinos, uh, many other creatures. In your view, what's going on and what needs to be done to reverse the trend? Well, African wildlife is under considerable threat. And even if 
uh, one never is lucky enough to go to Africa. I think we all value a world where we do have, you know, as Dorothy puts it in Wizard of Oz, lions and tigers and bears, oh my. We've got national parks, but we've got to work out these solutions of allowing wildlife to, to roam over much larger areas than the national parks. So that's the solution. It's not an easy one, but it's one where we have to bring in the people in the local communities as our partners and work out what the best local solution is. Stuart Pym is the Chair of Conservation Ecology at the Nicholas School of the Environment at Duke University. Thank you so much, Professor Pym. Thank you for inviting me onto your program. From Africa, we turn now to the Arctic, where iconic creatures are also under assault, including a favorite of this holiday season, the reindeer. This time last year, we reported on serious declines in the populations of reindeer, or caribou, on Victoria Island in Nunavut, Canada, where the Peary and Dolphin Union herds live. Jeff Flocken, the head of U.S. policy for the International Fund for Animal Welfare, said he was worried about them. They're in serious trouble. Um, well, caribou across the world, they're all found in the northern hemisphere, and these cold temperatures are declining. They think an average of about almost 60% decline from historic highs. And these that are in the most northern part are even in more trouble. During the last few winters, they've found mass die-offs of the Peary ones in particular. Up to 84% of the population is think to have been lost. And Flocken said he knew what was wrong. It's climate change. Uh, the temperature, the weather, and the landscape are all changing in the Arctic. So in particular with this species, they're a browsing species, and they need to have access to the different plants and native shrubs that grow in the tundra where they, they are in the winter. So usually in past times, there's kind of a light, you know, fluffy snow that falls in that region. But now because of the temperature change, they tend to have a heavy, icy rain. And what's happening is it's freezing over these plants. So the reindeer can't access them for food. What's happening, they're starving or they're expending too much energy trying to find food. As a result, starvation, malnutrition, low reproductive rates, um, and that's causing these die-offs. Now, one solution, said Jeff Flocken, would be for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to list these two herds of caribou under the Endangered Species Act. Well, the service announced last spring that listing may be warranted, but no further decision has been reached. But those aren't the only Canadian caribou that are in decline. The George River herd, further east in Labrador, is also in trouble. And that's affecting Native people who rely on the herds for meat and clothing. A population once estimated to be up to 900,000 reindeer has now been reduced to less than 28,000. And changing seasons are implicated in this decline as well. George Rich is an elder of the Innu tribe. He lives in a community of just 850 people in an indigenous village 150 miles north of Goose Bay, Labrador. Living in the same environment as a caribou, you'll notice that uh, the caribou has uh, a lot of problems with black flies in, uh, in La northern Labrador. Climate change, which created the airy thaw and the airy spring, and then uh, and the caribou rely on the cold weather in the month of June to able to bear calves, you know. Apparently, uh, once everything is all nice and warm, the black flies would come in. It's not only the black flies, it's also attractive to the, the mineral exploration. Once the snow is gone, it's more attractive for the mineral exploration to going on, you know. What happens in terms of the mineral exploration? What are they doing? Well, ever since the big uh, giant uh, nickel find in 1993 in our territory, 
It's been like a tornado of uh, mineral explorations going on. Why is the mining so bad for the caribou, in your view? In order to get the mineral exploration, you have to have a, a choppers to go one place to another. And the sound of the choppers really a devastating sound. They don't know where to look because they always choppers are around flying all over the place. So it spooks them? Yes. They doesn't pass in our migration route that our ancestors, grandfathers, and parents have waited for for many years. They're having a different uh, migration route. What's happening right now, one of the mineral exploration company trying to uh, build a road right in the heart of our territory, right in the heart of our carving grounds. So what are you seeing now? Have you noticed a difference in the caribou populations? Is the gradually decreased. The last four or five years, we noticed uh, when we went to our hunting grounds, we noticed that there are hardly any caribou. Only a few numbers, maybe one or two showed up. The decline itself is really uh, devastating to the inuit. How do the caribou fit into your traditional way of life? Well, we always rely on the caribou. We always depend on the caribou. Our ancestors, our grandparents, and, and parents even, depend on the caribou for their clothing, for their diet. Uh, and it uh, really is a, a traditional part and a spiritual aspect of, of our Dino way of life. So we have a lot of legends and stories of the caribou. What's your favorite story about the caribou? The story about uh, when there was a young man, uh, the young man who uh, had a dream about uh, the caribou wants to marry him. And he, he turned down... Uh, Married in his dream, the spirit of the caribou, who happened to be a woman, said, uh, if you don't uh, obey me, if you don't uh, do what I said, you are not going to be able to make it to your campsite, your father's campsite. He finally agreed to marry the spirit of the caribou that was in the dream. He married, and he went on hunting, and he left his bow and arrows uh, in the mountain. And, of course, uh, his uh, father was really anxious, and his brothers were looking for him everywhere, and his footprints uh, was leading towards the caribou herd. Then after that, he wasn't seen nowhere at all. The man who married the caribou was living among the caribou, was uh, just like uh, human beings. That's always what the stories we were told, that the caribous are, are human beings, and, and that's why I think there's a lot of respect uh, in all culture. You sent us a recording of a caribou hunting song uh, that I want to play now. This is an elder that uh, was uh, sharing this song that was passed on by his brother to him. Eh? And that song was probably uh, passed on for many, for many generations. It's a kind of a hunting song. It's that uh, you are so far away, I cannot reach you, and I'll catch up with you and uh, call him a friend in, in that song. Tell me about your culture. What, uh, what particularly do you do with caribou for rituals uh, among the Innu? Well, the main source of things that we did with the caribou, once, once everything uh, hunting is successful, the Inu hunters would gather all the caribou hind legs and then uh, clean the meat and pound the caribou bones, you know, and to uh, what we call the mukushan, which is a feast for all the people to attend. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with, with the Catholic Church when the, when the priest usually holds the communion 
and gave the, the kind of a holy bread to the people. That's the kind of a secret we did on the caribou. How has the scarcity of the of the caribou herd affected your people and your culture? You know, people used to follow caribou all along with a lot of exercise. We used to have maybe store about one or two caribou in the freezer. What do you eat these days, uh, if not caribou? We are forced to eat a store-bought food. We live in a very isolated community of Labrador. Hardly the only access to that is to by plane and by a coastal freighter in the summertime. Once that uh, frozen food comes in there, it usually is not in a very good situation at all. And then that's created uh, a lot of problems with the diet and eating uh, junk food and, and all that to create a problem like a diabetes uh, epidemic is one of the things that uh, we are facing right now. A lot of diabetes, you say? 30% uh, of people in, in my community have a diabetic, and a lot more with the, with the kidney failures. How will your community be affected if the caribou disappear from your region altogether? Without the caribou, I don't really think the Eno will be able to survive as the Eno themselves, because the caribou is our identity, is our culture, is our way of life, and it's also part of a big spiritual awareness of what's going on in the animal world. And without the caribou, we, we don't think the Eno will be able to survive. I do hope the caribou come back soon. Well, I uh, certainly hope so. I certainly hope so. George Rich is an elder of the Innu tribe uh, in northern Canada at Labrador. Thank you so much, sir. Oh, thank you very much. We stay up in the far north, in an equally cold part of the globe, for bird note today, but travel over to the other side of the North American continent. Here's Mary McCann. The Bering Sea in winter is a realm to which most people, aside from some very hardy fishermen, give a wide berth. Winter in this northern sea framed by Alaska and Siberia is frigid, stormy, and dark. But remarkably, some birds seem right at home here. The crested auklet is one such bird. A petite cousin of puffins, the crested auklet stands 10 inches high, weighs 9 ounces, and is feathered in charcoal gray. This little seabird takes its name from a comical crest curling out over the top of its large orange bill. If that's not whimsical enough, crested auklets bark like chihuahuas. And to top that off, the seabirds exude an odor of oranges from a chemical they produce that repels bothersome ticks. Crested auklets nest in immense colonies on Bering Sea islands and remain nearby through winter in flocks of many thousands. Because the auklets concentrate in huge numbers, they're at risk from oil spills. The auklet presents a superb natural spectacle. Picture a flock of tens of thousands of crested auklets flying low across the wave tops, yipping like an army of chihuahuas while trailing a perfume of fresh citrus. I'm Mary McCann. For some photos of crested auklets, fly on over to our website, LOE.org. Take a look. What a hairdo.
New research on some measures taken to fight the crude in the Gulf after the BP oil well explosion suggests the cure may have been a disaster as well. Keep listening to Living on Earth. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation, the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet, and Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. In April 2010, when the Deepwater Horizon disaster ravaged the Gulf of Mexico, BP decided to use a chemical called Corexit to try to disperse the gushing oil. The use of dispersants was controversial at the time, and now scientists have released the results of laboratory experiments designed to assess what effects that dispersant, oil mix, may have had on the Gulf of Mexico. The experiments used marine plankton called rotifers. Dr. Terry Snell, chair of the School of Biology at Georgia Tech, was one of the researchers. Rotifers are animals. They're microscopic, but they have all of the complex systems that any other animal would have. They're useful in ecotoxicology because we can expose these animals to a variety of toxicants and we can kill them by the millions without anybody really caring very much. Well, now the study findings have been published in the journal Environmental Pollution with Terry Snell as one of the lead authors. We were interested in what the consequences might be of using this dispersant Corexit in treating the oil spilled from the Macondo oil wellhead. And we had a suspicion that there might be some synergistic effects in terms of the toxicity of the oil and the Corexit that may not have been observed or recorded previously. We tested whether when you mix the oil and the Corexit together, you get a larger toxicity than you would have with either the oil or the Corexit by itself. And what were your results? In fact, we saw significant synergies between the oil and the Corexit, as much as 52 times greater toxicity when we applied the mixture uh, in the test versus applying either the oil or the Corexit by itself. In uh, toxicology, we are measuring something called an LC50, or the concentration it takes to kill 50% of the test organisms in the test period, in this case, 24 hours. So when we say that it's about 52 times more toxic, that means the concentration that it takes to kill 50% of the organisms in 24 hours is 52 times lower than the original concentration. And the point here is that the rotifers are a marker for the entire ecosystem, that as a biologist you would be concerned about all the organisms there uh, in the ocean? Yes. So the rotifers are what we would call a uh, a model organism or a biomarker uh, representing the planktonic ecosystem. We tested this component of the planktonic ecosystem, that is rotifers, to get a gauge for whether this component of the ecosystem was harmed, and in fact, it was. Now, we leave it to other people to test fish and crabs and other components of the marine ecosystem, but rotifers are uh, the base of the food chain. That is, they are filter feeders who eat the algae, 
And then they are in turn turning that energy and making it available to higher trophic levels like larval fish. So the larval fish themselves cannot eat the algae. They have to eat something that is capable of consuming the algae. The algae is the base of the whole, all the food chain. What were scientists saying about dispersants back in 2010 when the Deepwater Horizon oil spill occurred? I think the concern back then was that we simply didn't know enough to use these kinds of chemicals on such a broad scale and that the basic research that should have been done before the disaster was not done and the information simply wasn't there. Now, why do you suppose that BP used this dispersant against the advice, uh, against the concerns of a number of biologists? I think uh, that BP used uh, the dispersant at the direction of the Environmental Protection Agency. I mean, obviously, they were very concerned about the oil rolling up on the shores and into the marshes. Uh, What the dispersants do quite effectively is to make the oil disappear because it goes from big globs into very small, hard-to-see droplets. So in the decision to keep the oil off the beaches, they kind of rolled the dice biologically and hoped that there wasn't any major impact in the marine ecosystem. And uh, it turns out, at least in the planktonic ecosystem, there were substantial impacts. You don't have the hard data, but in the end, what do you suspect the ecological effect of this massive use of dispersants was on the Gulf? The Gulf, of course, is a huge, massive, complex ecosystem, so it's hard to say exactly what the effects will be. I mean, what we focused on was a small component of that system, and what we can tell you is that there were two main effects. One is a suppression of rotifer abundance and biomass in the water column. That suppression probably didn't last more than a few months. The second, maybe more worrisome effect is that there are toxic, there is toxicity in the benthic community to the dormant eggs that these rotifers produce. Benthic is the bottom, of course. The bottom. So these eggs that are lying in the sediments on the bottom are the things that will recolonize the water column in the spring and allow the population to regrow. Not only do rotifers uh, produce these dormant eggs, but also algae and dinoflagellate and copepods produce these. So the whole planktic community is reconstituted every spring from these dormant eggs in the sediment. If those dormant eggs in the sediment don't hatch because of the toxic effects of the oil and the dispersant, then there's going to be less biomass available for the small animals that feed on these plankton, namely larval fish, larval crabs, and larval shrimp. So we expect to see those populations also suppressed, and this may happen over a span of several years. So the Gulf of Mexico is a pretty tough place now for marine creatures to operate. We've had, of course, uh, these dead zones that uh, don't have oxygen. Uh, We've had this massive oil spill. Now dispersants have been added there. Overall, what concerns do you have about the health of the Gulf as an ecosystem? Well, my concern is that these stressors are cumulative, and you can take any one of those stressors maybe by itself But it takes years to recover from a stressor of the magnitude that we saw from the oil spill. 
And then when you add each stressor on to the load of stressors that the organisms are bearing, and then you put in things like climate change, global warming, ocean acidification, these things are presenting more and more challenges to the animals and plants that live in the Gulf. And my worry is that at some point, the challenges might be so great that we may come to a tipping point when the populations might, in fact, crash as a result of these cumulative effects. Terry Snell is chair of the School of Biology at the Georgia Institute of Technology. Thank you so much. You're welcome. We contacted NALCO, the makers of the dispersant corrects it. They declined to comment on the study. It's approaching the end of the year, a time when many of us look back and look forward. But predicting what's going to happen in the future has often included predictions that there may not be much future. Indeed, since the beginning of recorded time, there have been predictions of the end of time. And as Living on Earth's Bruce Gellerman reported, that happened in May last year. On May 21, 2011, the date of the rapture, each and every saved person goes to heaven How can anyone dare to dispute with the Bible concerning the absolute truth that the beginning of the Day of Judgment, together with the rapture, will occur on May 21, 2011? Of course, in the end, the end didn't occur. The apocalypse was delayed due to matters of biblical interpretation and math errors. But wait, the end is near again. The Internet is filled with fire and brimstone videos and books prophesying the approaching apocalypse based upon the exquisitely precise astronomical calculations of the ancient Maya. According to the Maya calendar, this cycle of creation will cease to exist at precisely four Ahau, three Kenkin. Sunday, December 23rd, 2012. According to this New Age interpretation of ancient Maya time-telling, Doomsday is just around the corner. Will you be ready? Well, it depends. Seems there's some dispute even among Maya end-of-the-world watchers. Doomsday could either be December 23, 2012, when a cosmic collision with planet X Nibiru destroys Earth, or our demise could come on December 21st at exactly 1111 Universal Time. That's the winter solstice, And for the first time in 25,765 years, the sun will align with the center of the Milky Way. But before abandoning all hope and earthly possessions, I decided to find out what's behind the Maya doomsday prophecy. So I traveled to the Maya ruins of Chichen Itza on Mexico's Yucatan Peninsula. I love Chichen Itza. I like Chichen Itza a lot. That's why I like to be here and I like to show to the people and share with the people my history, my culture. On a warm, windy day, I met veteran Chichen Itza guide Jorge Marina Ventura at the magnificent 1,300-year-old ruins. Chichen Itza was a religious capital for the Mayas. It was one of the most important cities of the whole Mayan territory at the pre-Hispanic time. 
By the time Spanish conquistadors arrived at Chichen Itza in 1526, the city had been abandoned for nearly 500 years. The collapse of the Maya civilization at Chichen Itza and the disappearance of their ancestors who lived centuries before in the lowlands of Central America comprise one of the great archaeological mysteries of our time. Scientists have searched these ruins high and low looking for answers. So did I. Whoa, look at this. This is the pyramid of Kukulkan or Quetzalcoatl, and both words means the feather serpent. The pyramid at Chichen Itza towers over the landscape. Sound echoes as tour guides clap to demonstrate the extraordinary acoustics of the sacred place. At the equinox, a shadow of the feathered serpent can be seen slithering down one of the four staircases. Each has exactly 91 steps. Added together with the top platform, that equals 365, the days in a solar year. The Maya had only stone tools and lacked the wheel, yet they were master mathematicians, architects, and astronomers. What happened is the pyramid, it was working as a calendar and at the same time was an astronomical observatory. Was it accurate? Oh yeah, definitely, yes. The Mayan calendar, uh, I dare say it was the most accurate calendars that a human being ever had. And right after the Maya, the next one is our calendar, the Gregorian calendar. So these people had a great knowledge about astronomy. The Maya had not one calendar, but three. The solar calendar, a religious calendar of 260 days, and the long count. Precisely 1,872,000 days, or 5,125.36 years, starting from the time the Maya believed the world began. The long count ends in December 2012. 2012, the uh, Maya prophecy says the world at the way that we know is going to change. What is going to be ending is going to be a term of time of 5,125 years. And we are part of that. But we don't know what's going to happen in 2012. Well, I searched for and found an expert who really should know. I'm William Saturno. I'm an archaeologist at Boston University. My specialty is the ancient Maya. Is the world going to end on December 21st, 2012? I wouldn't bet on it. That's unlikely. I mean, I guess it's as likely to end on that date as any date before it or after it in reality. Professor Saturno says time is relative. It's all a matter of which calendar you use. Now... There may be different calendars. You might be in year 5264. You know, this Jewish calendar uses different numbers. The Chinese calendar uses different numbers. But all of them represent a count since we started counting. And the Maya long count is just that. Now, the Maya long count is sort of interesting to us because it works sort of like an odometer in your car. Now, just as in a car, you used to only have enough digits in an odometer for 100,000 miles. Although that marks a great passing, most of us are pretty sure that our car isn't going to vanish at 100,000 miles, that the car doesn't, in fact, come to an end, right? That, oh, my God, I'm approaching 100,000 miles. It's going to explode. It'll disappear. I'll be in it. What if my kids are in it? We don't, we don't bother ourselves with that. We know that even if all of the zeros go back to zero, we know that it's not going to disappear. Actually, scientists believe 65 million years ago, much of life on Earth did disappear when a giant meteorite struck the northern Yucatan coast, not far from Chichen Itza. Jorge, my guide, says the cataclysmic impact also helped create the cenotes, or underground limestone sinkholes, that today store most of the water on the arid peninsula. This is the sacred cenote. 
they believe that the rain god was living at these cenotes. Actually, at the Chichen Itza area, there are about eight of them. Eight. In this dry place with no above-ground rivers or sizable lakes, the water-filled sinkholes were life-sustaining. And some were sacrificial sites, as archaeologists discovered when they drained the sacred cenote. In this one, the archaeologists took out a 251 human skeletons so far. They were sacrifices, sir. They were jumped alive into the sinkhole. Again, an offering to the god. An offering to the god, to the rain god, Yum Chaak, that they thought that was living in this sinkhole here. Apparently, the sacrifices weren't sufficient. The rain god didn't deliver. Around the 9th century, the Yucatan suffered a severe drought, made worse by deforestation. The Maya had cut down the forest, clearing the land to grow crops for their cities. You know, the drought will bring a lot of problems like no food and fights, you know, invasions. And at the end, disease and the people got to went away looking for a better place to live. The people don't die and vanish. BU archaeologist William Saturno. When we talk about the collapse of Maya, what they're really talking about is the collapse of government. There's evidence for drought. You know, a few drought years would lead to big problems on a social level. Is it the cause? But it's not the drought that causes the collapse. It's a human response that causes collapse. So what is the lesson, if any, that we can learn from the Maya? The lesson is a very poignant one. The lesson is really that we need to be more flexible, that we need to have the flexibility that enables us to see the writing on the wall and then react to it. Because if we can't react, all the lessons we can learn are simply lessons for the next generation, the generation that rebuilds after collapse. Boston University archaeologist William Saturno ending that report by Living on Earth's Bruce Gellerman. And as the Maya Long Count completes its cycle, a reminder that all things come to an end and navigating the time left for our civilization is in our hands. by the World Media Foundation, Bobby Bascom, Emmett Fitzgerald, Helen Palmer, Annie Sneed, James Kerwood, Megan Miner, and Gabriella Romano all helped to make our show. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Learstein composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org and check out our Facebook page, It's PRI's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from Stonyfield Farm, makers of organic yogurt, smoothies, and more. Stonyfield invites you to Just Eat Organic for a day. Details at JustEatOrganic.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Go Forward Fund and Pax World Mutual and Exchange Traded Funds, integrating environmental, social, and governance factors into investment analysis and decision-making on the web at PaxWorld.com. PaxWorld for tomorrow. PRI Public Radio International.